6, 2012, on just another hot and humid afternoon in Mississippi, a Portuguese family of five arrived at Jackson International Airport. A couple with three boys traveled to the U.S. so that the father might study at RTS Jackson and after his studies, return to Portugal and continue to pastor and to be a seminary professor. What had been planned as the four-year period has been progressively extended. Now a little bit over eight years have passed since our family arrived in Mississippi. The seven, four, and two-year-old boys are now 15, 12, and 10, 11, and I have 11 here. While time seems to fail to produce the normal aging effects on Marta, my gray hairs and particularly my weight have increased considerably. After eight years in Mississippi, and if the Lord wills, our family will leave for Washington, D.C. in the beginning of September and return to Lisbon, Portugal by the end of 2021. I could spend endless hours talking about the last eight years of our lives. But of all things we have experienced and have done, the greatest of God's blessings in the most significant aspect of our time in Mississippi has been this church. And have in mind that for us to elevate Grace Baptist Church as the most important aspect of our time here, is very significant if you take into consideration how the Lord has blessed our time here and how happy we have been and I have been in my studies and so forth. When we planned to move to the U.S., we did not know a single person in the Jackson area. But we did know this, that as Christians, membership in a local church is essential so Marta and I committed to join a church as soon as possible when we arrived here. After a month we arrived, we had already committed to become members of Grace Baptist Church, although then we had in the process of membership classes and so forth. But we had already committed after one month. And so we would say there are no better witnesses of our family's life in the last eight years than this church. In the last eight years, we have committed our lives to this church in a way that we didn't with anyone else. But the main reason I stand before here today is not because we have been members of this church for eight years, but because you have elected me as one of your pastors. And as our time here in Mississippi comes to an end, so does my role among you. So I found it appropriate that instead of doing what I usually did in the past eight years in bringing a new series, I should use my last sermons as an opportunity to address some important issues that are in my mind. Just take it as kind of the last words of a dying man. And I, I think, as you will see by the text today, uh, there is biblical basis for it. And let me give just a quick note to those who might be visiting us today. I want you to know that uh, the sermons that I'm going to preach, and if God allows me to preach the next five sermons, they are extraordinary. They will be very personal, uh, and I will break the pattern which I think it's most helpful for the edification of the church that should be usually uh, the practice of a pastor, which is to preach from full books of the Bible. I think it's the most appropriate and edifies the church the most. But I'm not apologizing for it. I think it is appropriate. I think it is appropriate that having been with us for eight years and also at a certain point serving you also as one of your pastors, I might address you with some personal concerns, some exhortations to you. So my proposed series, if God allows me to finish them, will be this. For this and next week, uh, I will propose to talk about eldership. 
pastoral ministry, and we will go to Acts 20, 17 to 38. Then after two weeks, I expect, and I will take like the church in Ephesus as a case study, starting in Acts, then going to Ephesians 4, 1 to 6 to talk about unity, and then going to Revelation 2, 1 to 7 in the next sermon to talk about truth and love. And finally, if God wills in our last Sunday among you, I will preach you a text that I already did, but I want to leave it as the last words which will come from Jesus' own words recorded in Matthew 28, and we will talk about the mission of the church. But let us start today. I invite you to open your Bibles in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 20, and we will read verses 17 to 38. Acts 20, 17 to 38. Before we read it, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, your word is set before our eyes. It was written by men, but men that you used, inspired and moved by the Holy Spirit to write these words. So we take them as your words. We believe that they are inspired, infallible, inerrant, given to your people for our edification, for our instruction, for our correction, for our exhortation. So, Father, as we open and meditate upon it, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, open our minds so that we might understand it, but also open our hearts. We want to apply them to the life of this church and to our personal lives. Help us, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. Acts 20, 17 to 38. Now, from my leaders, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. This is talking about the Apostle Paul. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you in public and from house to house testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value not as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among you, and from among yourselves, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now, 
I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You know yourselves that these hands ministered to my needs and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. So if you know the book of Acts, you know that Acts is actually the second book or the second volume. It's the second part of something that has been written before. If you open in Acts 1.1, you will see that uh, Luke had already said that in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So the book of Acts, we can say, is a continuation of what Jesus continued to do by the power of the Holy Spirit once Jesus had ascended to heaven. The book of Acts, if you know it well, narrates the establishment and the growth of the new covenant church. Starting in Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit descended upon the disciples that were gathered, just as Jesus had promised them. And as we read also in chapter 1, verse 8, that Jesus had promised, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And this is the promise that is narrated in the book of Acts, is the fulfillment of this. And you will be my disciples. And we see this circles in Acts, in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And remember that Acts 28 ends with Paul imprisoned in Rome, the ends of the earth. In God's will, in the fulfillment of his plans, when we read Acts, we see that one of the main uh, human characters of this book is the Apostle Paul. We go to chapter 9, and Luke narrates the conversion and the commission of Paul. And then after chapter 13 is basically following Paul's steps uh, one by one in what we know as his uh, missionary trips or journeys or campaigns, whatever you want to call them, as he seeks to fulfill the mission that God gave him to reach the Gentiles. So he goes all throughout uh, the land and throughout the nations preaching the gospel. And as we follow, we note that there is a pattern in Paul's ministry. And you can see that. Please open in Acts 14, 21 to 23. Because it is important for us to understand what is Paul's relationship to the church in Ephesus. Why is he talking to the elders of the church at this point? What type of relationship do they have? And Paul had this pattern, see Acts 14, 21 to 23. When they had preached the gospel to that city, as they used to do, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, into Iconium, into Antioch. And this they did many times. So they would go, they would preach the gospel, and then they would come back and visit the churches that they had planned to strengthen them, to see how they were doing, and to build them up. That's what... Uh, Luke is narrating here, see verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And they, when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they have believed. And so Paul comes, he preaches the gospel, he establishes churches, regular churches, with appointed elders, and he continues to shepherd them, not because he is present there, but as an apostle. 
that he goes to other places, but he continues to care for them. He continues to want to strengthen them, to encourage them. So that's what we see happening in the text that we have just read that Paul calls the Ephesian elders. Now, I would like you also to see, go now to, please, to Acts 18 and see verses 22 and 23. And we read, this is right before the text that we have, uh, when Paul is coming to Ephesus, this section. He says, when he had landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went, out, went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he, depended, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia. You, you see, Paul is always doing this, going from place to place. Strengthening, again, the same term, because that's what he does, strengthening the disciples. So it is in this context of Paul's third missionary campaign that he arrives in Ephesus. So what do we know about, about Paul's relationship with this church? See still on chapter 18. First we read that there was a man that had been there before Paul and he was preaching. Not necessarily knowing the gospel in a clear way or in a full way, but he was clearly uh, a believer and he believed, as the text says, he believes that Christ was the Messiah. So see chapter 18, 28. Uh, it says that he powerfully, this Apollos, he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by scriptures that the Christ, and remember Christ means Messiah, is Jesus. Okay? Second, what we know is that we read that when Paul arrives in the city, there were already a group of men of which Luke refers at, as disciples. I'm not going to tell you the discussion if they are true believers or not, and if they were Christians or not. I will leave it to another time. But note that they were already people ready to listen to the word, ready to what Paul had to teach. Paul asks them some questions. They develop, and what we see, and this is important, is that although these men were there, there was still no church there. We see that the first thing that Paul does when he arrives in Ephesus is establishing a church there. So he is actually their spiritual father. He was the one that established the church in Ephesus. You can see that uh, verses 19, 5 to 7. When this group of men, after Paul talks to them and shares the whole of the gospel in a clear way, they are baptized and they receive the Holy Spirit. A church is established then. Number three important is that we read that Paul spent around three years in Ephesus. So this is a good amount of time when the church was growing. The time of Paul in Ephesus was greatly blessed, but also full of tribulation and persecution. There was these two things, blessing and persecution. We see ver, uh, chapter 19, verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So this is one side. What is the context and the circumstances? Chapter 19, 23 and 29a. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. In verse 29, so the city was filled with confusion. Okay, this was the context. So imagine the bonds. The reason I'm giving you this information is that I want you to realize that there is a close bond before, between this church and the Apostle Paul. He had a, a history with this church. They deeply loved each other. Not only Paul had established the church there, but he had also served the church with all his heart and strength for a period of three years. He served them generously and sacrificially. And the great esteem that they have for each other is evident in the emotionally charged episode that we have just read. But after three years, we read also in Acts that Paul left because he had a mission to fulfill. 
to preach the gospel in other cities, in other areas. It was his God's given mission. But then, as he is planning to return to Jerusalem sometime after, and as he usually does, he is visiting the churches, he is strengthening the brothers, as Scripture says. But he was in a hurry to go to Jerusalem, and he did not have time to pass in Ephesus because he wanted to be in Jerusalem by Pentecost. So this is what we started to read. See Acts 20, 16 and 17. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus instead of going there, so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus, See this, because this balance is important. He could not go there because he had something important to do. He had a mission. However, it didn't mean that he, did, he was not concerned for them. Paul was always concerned for the churches that he had established. Paul was always concerned by the flock that God had given them. So what we read is that now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and summon the elders of the church to come in. Now, we should ask this, or I might ask you, did you know that this is the only address to Christians in the book of Acts? Why is this important? Because if you read the book of Acts, the book of Acts is full of speeches. Starting with Peter in chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, you go all through the end of chapter 28, and there are constant speeches. Acts is known to be a narrative full of speeches. But this is the only one. Most of the other speeches, if you read them, they are apologetic or evangelistic in nature. Paul is preaching the gospel and speaking to uh, unbelievers. But this is the one recorded for us when Paul speaks to Christians. And if you remember something that we have already uh, referred before, is that, you see, when you tell history, when you narrate history, you need to be selective. You cannot say all the things that you know or all that you could say. Why? It would not fit in all the volumes of the earth, right? If you would say all the details. So what does every historian needs to do? He needs to be selective. He needs to pick what he believes are the most important parts of the story according to the purpose that he wants, what he wants to convey. So when we come and we see that Luke records the only speech to Christians in a full book of 28 chapters, we should pay attention. Luke clearly thought, nah, this book is not mostly about speeches to Christians, but this one needs to be recorded. And so this is important for the church. It is important for us. You see, the reason it is so important is because this is a conversation from a pastor to pastors. It is true that Paul had a special role as an apostle. Nonetheless, they share him and the elders some important aspects of their ministry. It is Paul's concern for the church. We can put it just as the apostle Peter put it in 1 Peter 1.5. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. That's what Paul is doing. He is calling the elders of the church as a fellow elder. He wants to exhort them. He is concerned for them. He wants to shepherd them. And this address is particularly important because it instructs us about the importance and role of the pastors in the life of the church. As my time as your pastor is coming to an end, I must say that this is a main concern of mine. And it comes actually in the sequence of a proposal that your elders had just set before you concerning the process of the choosing and election of a future full-time pastor for this church. The sermons I have planned, if the Lord allows me to accomplish them, they will address main topics that are constantly in my mind when I think about you and the things that I pray for you the most. Perhaps the choice of your next full-time pastor is probably the one that occupies my mind the most. I hope that in these two sermons that we will 
see this passage and study it, you might be reminded of the importance of the office of an elder in God's plans for the local churches. And I pray that as you recognize this importance, you might also have a humble and a serious approach to the process of choosing the next full-time pastor. My goal today will be just to give a broad picture of this passage and then the next Sunday spending more time in applying them. But I want to spend time so that you understand what Paul says and the importance for the life of the church. So this sermon, I have three simple points that I think that relatively well summarize this passage. One is Paul's ministry. Number two is Paul's concerns. And number three is Paul's assurance. So ministry, concerns, and assurance. Let's start with Paul's ministry which I just put it this way, a pattern to be followed. See the words of Paul, verse 18, the second part of verse 18, uh, the first words of Paul. You know, says Paul to the elders, you know how I lived with you the whole time since the first day that I set foot in Asia. Now note this, Paul speaks about himself not because he is seeking to be self-centered, to call attention to himself. He speaks about himself because the what and the how that he lived among them is to be the pattern from which the elders should serve and take from. He speaks this way because his example is a reason for imitation and for trust. So Paul on the one hand is saying this, do you remember how I served you? If you remember how I served you, you should know that you can trust me. On the other hand is, do you remember how I served you? Follow after my pattern in the way that I did. You should serve the same way. That's what Paul is doing. So what does Paul speak about himself? You will see that he repeats also when he speaks about the elders and their role. So let us see the what and the how. The what of Paul's ministry and how he did it. Let's go to the content first, the what. See verse 20 and 21. Paul says, I did not shrink about nothing that was profitable, which I did not proclaim to you and taught you in public and from house to house. Now see what Paul says testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, the repentance to God and faith in our Lord Jesus. You see, Paul's ministry and the ministry of any pastor is simple and is centered on just one thing, the message of the gospel. As Paul had said in a very clear way to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 2.2, For I decided to know nothing among you, Paul is saying exactly the same thing, just with different words. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This is the ministry of a pastor. The Lord Jesus is the reason both for His life and for His ministry. Anything else Paul teaches in his letters and also in this speech is of secondary level of importance when compared to the excellency of Christ. What the church needs is Christ, nothing more. The pastor is an instrument. The pastor is supposed to set a pattern for the church. But he is just shepherding them to lead them to good pastures. And those are the Lord Jesus Christ, the true Lord and the true Master. You see, Paul, as a good shepherd, does not see himself as an end. He is a servant, God's instrument, like he said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4, 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves. You see, pastors do not preach themselves. It's not the main subject. They have their own personality. They have their own style. But they are just instruments of a message which is really important. So Paul says, what we proclaim is not ourselves, 
but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. You see, Paul is well aware of who he was and who he is now. He is well aware of his sin. He was well aware that he was persecuting the church before Christ met him and changed his heart. And so he knows that all things are for Christ and having Christ in view. So this is the what of Paul's ministry. And the what of his ministry determines the how. The content of Paul's ministry determines the manner in which he serves. The way Paul served among them derives from the content of his ministry. Who he is and his mission determine the way that he accomplishes it. So let's go to the manner. The what is the gospel. It's the person and work of Christ. But how? See verse 20 and 21. He says that, I did not shrink about nothing that was profitable, which I did not proclaim to you, and taught you in public and from house to house. If you see verse 27, when he charges the elders, he speaks about the whole counsel of God. You see, Paul knows the difference between the fear of God and the fear of man. You know why? Because pastors are tempted. They are sinners. They are human beings. And pastors are tempted to water down the message of the gospel to please people, to avoid problems. But also, and this is important, and sometimes we don't speak about it enough, that pastors are also tempted as human beings that they are to preach themselves or sometimes preach less than the whole counsel of God. You see, pastors, as sons of their parents, are tempted to be more a reflection of their culture, their social and political setting, than of the gospel. This is a temptation, and we need to be reminded. We are to preach the gospel, and only the gospel. We should not shrink from preaching all the gospel and all the message, and nothing but the message. Nothing but the word of God, you see. Because Paul says, and remember, that he was speaking as a Jew to Gentiles. He was cross-culturing. You see, the message of the gospel is not culturally bounded. Paul is saying, do as I did. I did not come to you as a Jew. I came to you as a Christian, preaching to you the gospel, not my Jewishness, you see. So Paul is saying that he preached not himself, but he preached what was profitable. He just gave them the whole counsel of God. And then see verse 19. Serving the Lord with all humility and tears and trials which happened to me by the plot of the Jews. You see, Paul lists a group of three ways in which he had served among them. Number one, it was a humble service. As some have noted, and this is very important to remember, it is significant that Paul mentions humility because it was not one of the virtues in the Greco-Roman world. And it is surely not one of the virtues in our culture today. Humility. Note that humility is not submission to the flock. It's not what Paul is saying. Humility is the opposite of pride. He does not serve them for self-gain. He serves them because he loves his Lord and he loves them. He serves for their profit. This is humility. You see? The second thing is that he served them compassionately. As the text says, he served them in tears. As he told the Galatians in Galatians 4.19, My little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. These are the tears that he had. Or as he said to the Corinthians, when he lists all the trials that he went through, and he is building up, and if you read those trials, they are actually 
every one is worse than the previous one. And he is building up and building up and building up. And you know how he finishes this? He says in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, And apart from other things, apart from all other trials, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. He served them compassionately. But finally, he also served them in the midst of trials. You see, the reason why Paul served them was not for personal gain or material prosperity. He served them for their own gain, independently of circumstances, independently of the difficulties that he had to face. In other words, Paul is just saying, you know how I served among you. I served you following the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, although he was God, he did not grasp to that position, but he humiliated himself, becoming like you and me, being obedient to the Father in all things, even to the point of death and death on the cross. Paul is saying, I'm just following the pattern of our Lord. And this is the pattern that you should follow also. You see, the pastor seeks to live in accordance to the message that he preaches. The faithful pastor preaches Christ and him crucified. He lives an example of the gospel that he preaches in humility, compassionately, and sacrificially. Now see verse 22 when he says, And now see that bound by the Spirit... I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me in it. Just following this, a faithful pastor is someone whose life is fully committed to God. You see, pastors no longer have revelations or visions given by God, as Paul had. But they have the Holy Spirit, and they seek to serve in the best of their abilities and gifts for the sake of the kingdom. Now, verse 23, Paul says... But I do not consider my own life worthy if only I finish my mission and the service to which I receive from the Lord Jesus is completed, which is to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Again, a shepherd who resembles the high shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, is a pastor whose mission is more important than his own life. He values more God and his kingdom than what he values himself. Because true Christian service, modeled after the Lord Jesus, must be sacrificial. But as we noted before, you see, Paul is not speaking about himself because he was self-centered. He called the Ephesian elders with a purpose to exhort them to bring them some concerns, to charge them. So he speaks about himself to model a pattern for them, and now he addresses them. He says, you well know how I served among you. You can trust me. You know that I loved you with all my heart. I only want what is good for you. I only shared and preached to you what was profitable to you. I preach only Christ and Him crucified and not myself. You can trust me, but now also follow my pattern. So number two, we have seen Paul's ministries. Let us go to Paul's concerns, his exhortations and warnings, the reason why he called them. See verses 28 to 31. This is what Paul tells them. Take care of yourselves and all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit placed you as overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he obtained through his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come to you, not sparing the flock. And from among yourselves, men will arise, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert remembering that for three years, night and day, we did not cease warning each one of you with tears. You see, brothers and sisters, pastors are overseers. 
They are to take care and protect the flock as a pastor takes care of his flock. But note what Paul says, the flock is of God. It does not belong to the human shepherd. He says, to shepherd the church of God, which he obtained through his own blood. The responsibility of the pastors is great. Pastors, says Paul, take care of the flock which God has purchased with such a high price and with such love. So Paul says, take care of the flock and remember it does not belong to you. Take care of the sheep that are so precious to him. They are so precious that he was willing to shed his own blood for them. You see, Paul is highlighting the responsibility of pastors before God. They will have to to give an account for the flock that they were given. That's why we read in Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. You see, submit to them because their role is to take care of you and be sure of that. They will be accountable for all that they did. What a great responsibility. The church must recognize that elders are given to the church to shepherd it. The church must recognize their importance and submit to them. So if the word of God is true, and it is, then pastors lead the flock through their example. They preach the whole counsel of God. They set a pattern to be followed. If the word of God is true, and it is, then it is correct the saying, that no church will rise above her pastors. They are the ones who take care of the church. They are the ones who teach. They are the ones who protect, which requires knowledge, but also spiritual discernments. They are the ones who set the pattern. So the healthiness of a local church is intrinsically related and bounded to her pastors. This is why it is so important to elect qualified men. That is why much care should be taken in electing elders. As I said before, of the things that most occupy my mind about you, for which I pray the most, I think this is the area that I pray the most, the election of your next full-time pastor. I pray that God might be gracious and give you a man according to God's own heart who might be able to serve you well. I pray that he might be biblically grounded, but also mission-minded, someone who loves you deeply, but also who has a heart for the loss, someone able to teach you the whole counsel of God, but also someone who is wise and have spiritual discernment. And let me say this, and you will allow me to make this exhortation. Knowing this church, I exhort you to take special care in this. It is a God-given responsibility of the church to elect her pastors. You are to submit to Pastor Thomas' leadership and care, and he is to lead you on this responsibility. But do not forget that you will also be accountable, and it is your responsibility to elect your pastors according to scriptures. Allow me to exhort you as your pastor still to take this issue with all seriousness and intentionality. I fear that if you do not do so, you might come to a point that you might have to choose a why not pastor. I came up with this. A why, you know what a why not pastor is? Is that if it is not taken intentionally, 
you might come and if you accept the proposal that we just set before you, that you might come to the end of those two years and not having done your job and taking care seriously your responsibility, you might end up saying, uh, why not this one? Or why not that one? And you might not be careful enough in choosing your next full-time pastor. Brothers and sisters, the election of your next full-time pastor is a decision that will define the church for decades to come. Be intentional and be wise. Finally, I want to make this point, and this will be the end of the sermon today. We spoke about Paul's ministry as a pattern to be followed by elders. We spoke about Paul's concerns, how he speaks to the elders and their responsibility as they shepherd the flock. And finally, Paul's assurance that is so crucial for Paul's ministry and for any pastor's ministry. You see, in the midst of all the dangers, Paul had just, he was just saying, and he was saying with certainty, he was not saying perhaps, he was saying, I know that when I leave, fierce wolves will come among you. The next question is, why are you leaving then? Don't go, stay. We don't want you to go, right? But Paul is going because Paul has a mission. So we can ask this, how is it possible that a pastor who truly loves his flock be able to leave them? And the answer, it's on verse 32. And now I entrust you to God. And the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and grant the inheritance among those who are sanctified. You see, this is the great security of Paul and of any pastor. No local church, no single one, no single church is dependent upon any man. Although it is God's desire to shepherd you through a qualified and exemplary man, the church belongs to God and it is God who sustains his church. It is the word of God, which we see in verse 32, that is able, not the pastors, the word of God. They minister the word. As Paul says, day and night to Jews and Greeks in public and in private. He is just a minister. He is not the one building him up. God is building them up through his word. It is the word that builds us up. You see, I entrust you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and grant the inheritance among those who are sanctified. You see, the success of the church is not ultimately dependent on their pastors or any human agency or circumstances. Pastors are God-given gifts to the church as long as they serve faithfully, which means if they feed the church with the word of God, the whole counsel of God, and nothing more. Because it is the word that builds the church. Brothers and sisters, this is my assurance. You know, I'm fully sure of this. The Holy Spirit was among you before I arrived, and the Holy Spirit will continue to be among you once I depart. And this should be your assurance too. Trust the Lord with your lives in the life of the church. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, because it is God who works in you, both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. So I end with Paul's words and Scripture's words in verse 36 to 37, when it says that when Paul finished speaking and after he had said these things, he bent his knees and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. 
they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. Brothers and sisters, humans were created as emotional and affected beings. We are bounded to each other. We grow in friendship and love for each other. We long and miss and miss each other. You see, Christians are not Buddhists or Stoics. We embrace our affections as God-given gifts. And because we live in a sinful, broken world, we cry when we miss someone. And as we see in this passage, these people loved one another. They hugged and kissed each other as a representation of their deep affections, affections that they shared. But you see, Christians cry in a very particular way because we cry while rejoicing and we can be sorrowful while hopeful at the same time. We know that the bond that unites us is eternal because we are united to Christ. And if we are in him, there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that, then, that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And so, as Paul said to the Philippians in chapter 1, verses 3 to 6, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel for, from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Let us stay in prayer. As we sing hymn number 330, Amazing Grace. 